You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, MD, Big Beard, Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Wit, Pablo, Nikki, Trey, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. To begin today, I need to get something out of the way, right off the bat. I like westerns. The movies, old westerns. Less the classic John Wayne white hat, black hat westerns. In fact, I might actually kind of hate those movies. But everything from the 70s spaghetti westerns on, I really enjoy. They're filled with criminals and injustice and anti-heroes and shades of gray. Many of the same things that drew me to pirates are there in the westerns. My first cowboy movie was Young Guns 2, starring Emilio Estevez as perhaps the most famous outlaw in the Old West, Billy the Kid. And if I don't just acknowledge right here at the outset that Billy the Kid, alias William Bonney, was a Scottish-American outlaw with a name that was notably similar to our subject today. If I don't get that out of the way, I'm just going to fill the episode with terrible out-of-place jokes, or maybe even do something like construct an entire episode around the career of Billy the Kid. You don't want that. I don't want that. None of us want me to pepper in songs from the very first album I ever bought with my own money, the Young Guns 2 soundtrack by John Bon Jovi. I don't know where I'm going Only God knows where I've been I'm a devil on the run A six-gun lover A candle in the wind That would be ridiculous, after all. But if we pretend, and we would be pretending, if we pretend that I spent an entire afternoon watching the Young Guns saga and reading up on Billy the Kid in an attempt to find the similarities which with to structure this episode, 
we would be forced to recognize in that entirely hypothetical case that there just isn't that much similarity there between Billy the Kid and William Kid. Billy the Kid, William Bonnie, was, according to the eminently historically accurate film Young Guns, quote, a runaway derelict scud-bottom vagrant, end quote. That is something that could be said for a lot of pirates, most pirates, in fact, even pirate captains. But not William Kidd. He was something different. He was a bit of an odd fish in the world of the pirates. Those oddities make him among the most interesting and complex pirates of all time, and they make him perhaps the most famous ever to have sailed. This is episode 189. A Mighty Man. More than Billy the Kid, in many ways, William Kid reminds me of William Dampier. Both men were educated, at least a bit. William Kid was by no means a scholar like Dampier, but he knew how to read and write. He could keep accounts, and he was versed in all of the skills required to sail. Both men were landowners and married. Although, for Kid, we haven't reached that point yet. But they were gentlemen not members of the gentry or anything so august, but solidly middle class. But it's about there that the comparisons begin to end. William Kidd was more boisterous. He was more bold. He was a better sailor and a better leader than Dampier, hence why he became a captain. Dampier, on the other hand, was a lot smarter than William Kidd. Not only as a scholar and a sage, but... Dampier could almost always read the situation. He saw the perils on his path and usually managed to avoid them. William Kidd, on the other hand, rarely did. Beyond that, there are their love lives and sexuality. William Dampier was probably gay. William Kidd was not. In addition to his wife and their loving relationship, which we will get to, Kidd was known to hire or to otherwise entice scores of working women to his decks, usually for the entertainment of his crew. Whether they were New York women from Petticoat Lane or indigenous women in some faraway country, throughout his career, Kidd shelled out a fair bit of his own treasure for their services. He was known to partake himself, but mostly it was a management style. When the crew starts grumbling and turning a bit mutinous, a fair bit of wine and women brought aboard will quiet them down, at least for a while. But in the end, William Kidd just wasn't a runaway, derelict, scud-bottom vagrant. He came from a relatively good family and would raise himself up to be one of the more prominent members of New York society. That's why today we're not catching up with him on a pirate ship, but instead a legal, licensed privateer. In 1688 and early 1689, William Kidd and Robert Culliford and probably William Mason and six or seven other British men sailed on board the Saint-Rose under Captain Jean Charpin. The quartermaster on board Saint-Rose was Jean Fantin. Now that's an odd move, signing up with the French in 1688 as a Briton. No one was of any illusion that England and France would not soon be at war, so why did these men do so? We could point to any number of hypotheticals. You know, maybe William Kidd, in the tradition of many a Scotsman, the Stuarts included, maybe 
Kidd held a warm place in his heart for the French, much warmer than many Scotsmen held for England. Maybe Kidd signed up with the French in a fit of patriotic anti-English fervor. But while we could ascribe all kinds of motivations to William Kidd signing up with the French, I don't think we should. I mean, joining a privateer crew was just a sound financial decision. Assuming you survived, you were set to make a decent amount of money. Truth is, though, we don't know why William Kidd or Culliford or any of the others did it. They were hardly worth a mention in anybody's record except for a couple of mentions about the oddity of a group of Britons signing up to sail with the French. Which is a real shame, the lack of records. It means that we know very little about how William Kidd came into possession of his very first ship. We don't know much about how this anonymous sailor, this lowly privateer, how he became, officially, Captain Kidd. We do know a bit, though. Saint Rose was a member of the largest privateer fleet since Henry Morgan sailed on Panama. The governor of Saint-Domingue, Jean-Baptiste Ducasse, and Lauro de Graff led an armada of French privateers, mostly out of Tortuga and Petit Guave. Jean Charpin was part of that armada. And in early 1689, the Saint-Rose captured a rich Dutch merchantman, somewhere in the Leeward Islands. Now this was an entirely legal military maneuver carried out by private naval contractors. But something happened here. It could have been something big and dramatic. You know, maybe the French on board Saint-Rose tortured and killed a few Englishmen. Maybe they insulted St. George in the honor of all Britain. Maybe, more likely, William Kidd and his fellow Britons were stiffed out of their full share, the kind of thing that might happen because they were, after all, the enemy. But something does seem to have shifted for the British on board Saint-Rose. A few days later, she put in at St. Kitts, a French possession at the time. The captain, Charpin, took a brigantine and enough men to sail her, along with all of the cargo that they possessed, and they sailed north, probably to Port Royal in Acadia. This was probably suggestive of a split among the crew, but it's not something we have any information about. However, we do know that the crew of Saint Rose voted in as their new captain, Jean Fantin, and then they celebrated with a legendary party. Nearly all of these privateers went ashore to spend all of their recent winnings. They lavishly doled out coin for wine and women and song and gambling. It was quite the affair, a real boon to the economy of St. Kitts. But those French privateers made one big mistake. They left twenty of their number on board the Saint-Rose to guard her. Eleven or twelve of those men were French. But the rest were, well, William Kidd, Robert Culliford, probably William Mason, and the rest of the Britons. And maybe, you know, it seems small, but maybe that's all it was. Maybe these British sailors were just annoyed that they had been denied the pleasures of a stop in port, or maybe this was just the opportunity that they had been waiting for. On the 15th of August, 1689, ten months into the Nine Years' War, 
Captain General Christopher Codrington of Nevis wrote a letter in triplicate to his financial backers in London, to the Lords of Trade, and to his son at Oxford. He wrote that eight days prior, on the 7th of August, he went down to the docks and, quote, found a French ship of sixteen guns that had been surprised and captured by the English. She was formerly a privateer manned by a hundred and thirty English and French, but mostly French. All but twenty of them made a descent on St. Christopher's, leaving the ship at anchor at Basseterre with twelve French and eight English on board. The last named set upon the French, soon overcame them without the loss of a man, and brought the ship in here. She is now fitting for the king's service, her captain being William Kidd. End quote. Now, depending on who you listen to, among William Kidd and his contemporaries who were there, you will hear widely differing stories about why the pirates captured the San Rose. Everything from good old-fashioned revenge to a plan to sail her off and be proper pirates, to William Kidd's own assertion, to his tale that it was a patriotic move, another wartime maneuver to capture an enemy privateer. Maybe he'd been a sleeper agent this whole time. And usually I'm more than happy to point out the untruths that pirates were wont to tell, but in this case there is a ring of truth in all of that, in all of those. Some of those who took part in this little mutiny did have good reason for revenge. Many of them would go on to be some of the most famous pirates of the early Golden Age. And Kidd himself, well, he's a complex character. You can almost believe that he was doing this as a patriotic move. Historian Richard Zacks tells us in his book Pirate Hunter, The True Story of Captain Kidd, that his whole career was a tightrope walk between legitimacy and piracy. That's what makes him so fascinating. But we still don't know exactly how William Kidd became captain. And I'm aware that there's a, an obtrusive amount of we don't know in this episode. Most storytellers and historians choose to begin Kidd's story in 1695, which is smart. These are early days for Captain Kidd, and we don't really know a lot about them. But this story today is the reason that Captain Kidd would go on to be tapped by the governor in New York, the East India Company, a duke, even the king, signed his name. The reason that those august men chose him for his later and much more famous and well-documented voyage. So it's worth talking about, even though we don't know how Captain Kidd became captain. Reports differ on the subject. He was probably voted in. That's how these things usually went at that period in time. But there are those who suggest that Christopher Codrington appointed him captain. And actually, Codrington is worth a mention here. He was a, a pillar, a central pillar of the Leeward Islands. He had been a governor. He was a slave owner, a plantation owner, a large sugar producer. More, though, he was captain-general of the whole of the Leeward Islands. That's the highest military rank held by anyone who lived there. He outranked every English governor this side of Jamaica. 
Whether or not he granted William Kidd his first captaincy, we'll never know, but he did grant him his first privateering commission. That commission records the name of Kidd's new ship. The Saint Rose had been rechristened to Blessed William. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And I really want to give William Kidd credit for what would be an absolutely baller move, naming a ship after yourself, but that's not what happened. Blessed William was named for the king, for William III, King of England. In addition to the new name, Codrington upgraded Blessed William, gave her a full overhaul. They careened the vessel, they repaired her, they gave her new sails and four more big guns. Meanwhile, though, Captain Kidd recruited. And as far as I can tell, this is the earliest example in the record of pirates being recruited with a kind of a a help-wanted poster. Captain Kidd nailed a copy of his ship's Articles of Agreement, his Buccaneer Code, nailed it to the door of a few local taverns. And usually there would be a note at the bottom that said something very like, you know, inquire within. Those pirates who chose to do so would find William Kidd or Robert Culliford or maybe William Mason waiting to sign them up for this new crew. This kind of thing is going to become very common amongst pirates and privateers, but as far as I can tell, this is the first example, the earliest example, of a pirate or privateer using their code to recruit. Now I'm not going to relate this code to you today. I can't. We don't have a copy of it. We do have a copy of the Articles of Agreement from Kidd's much more famous 1695 voyage, but those articles, as we will see when we get to it, are very specific to that voyage. However, that code must have been convincing. Captain Kidd's recruiting and Codrington's outfitting brought the complement of Blessed William to 110 men and twenty big guns, at which point she was incorporated into a small naval squadron out of Nevis, led by Admiral Thomas Houston. What follows is a decent example of what the Nine Years' War looked like in the West Indies, or at any rate in the Lesser Antilles. While there were larger land-based maneuvers taking place on Hispaniola, for example, you may recall Lauro de Graff and the tragedy of La Limonade, there were smaller, usually clandestine, almost uh, 
guerrilla naval operations happening to the east. France, Holland, and England and the Lesser Antilles were essentially paying sailors to take lessons in piracy. On 30th December, their little fleet, out of Nevis, arrived at the island of Marie-Galant, one of the smaller islands in the chain that make up Guadeloupe. Marie-Galant, really all of Guadeloupe, was French territory at that time and very rich in sugar. The fleet of maybe half a dozen privateer vessels descended on the port at Grandberg and had their way with the city. There was no defense at Grandberg to speak of. A couple of coastal skimmers fired off a shot or two to defend their honor, and then they surrendered. These kinds of raids, in wartime at least, were commonplace in these islands. All those latter-day buccaneers, those who had sailed on the Pacific adventures, well, they all earned their bones in the Third Anglo-Dutch War on raids just like this. Some of them against the very same islands we're talking about today. These tiny colonies had hundreds, or in some cases thousands of slaves. They had tons of money and sugar just lying around. But the white population of these islands, the people they would allow to hold guns, was small. They had virtually nobody to man the defenses, and in most cases had no defenses to speak of. Unless a Royal Navy squadron just happened to be in the neighborhood, they were without defense. And right now, the Royal Navy was busy. At this moment, across the Atlantic, Henry Avery was serving as a gunner's mate in a fleet that was getting their asses handed to them. We'll get to that next time. But that's why the Leeward Islands, really most of the West Indies, relied on privateer fleets. They could serve as a defense force, but in order to keep that defense force around, if they weren't going to pay the privateers, they had to offer them raids like this. They were almost budgeted into the operating costs of all of these sugar islands, be they French, Dutch, or English. That's why, here at Marie-Galant, they surrendered so easily. That's how you did things. And there was a certain code of conduct expected. There was no torture or rape or murder on this raid, nor was there on many others of its kind. There were certainly rapes and killings from time to time, but if you were caught committing such acts while representing the crown, remember, they'd hang you. Your own people would hang you. Now, don't get me wrong, this wasn't a, a nice raid. They didn't bring tea for the locals. They'd drink up all your rum, and they'd eat all your pork, and they'd put their dirty feet up on the table, but mostly it was an orderly affair. You know, load up the sugar and empty the town coffers of enough silver that everyone could pretend to agree that that was all they had to offer, which of course it wasn't. Plantation owners were filthy rich, as were these colonies. But in this case, they paid off the privateers with 2,000 pounds sterling. Which sounds okay, but remember that there were six ships here. If we assume that they were all of a similar size, that would mean 600 privateers, which, if divided equally amongst the crews, would give each man a share of three and one-thirds pounds each. Not exactly a retirement fund. Not even enough to really properly get drunk on, maybe for a night, but not for the weeks that these privateers were hoping for. 
Of course, their holds were full of sugar, and that's great, but a decent portion of that was going to go to old Chris Codrington. The government, after all, has to take their cut. For most of the privateers here at Marigalant, this was to be expected. See, a raid like this, well, this was a gig for them. They had jobs back in Nevis, usually driving slaves, but this was a little bonus. Hey, sign up for this raid and we'll go attack the French. You can drink all their rum, you can eat all their pork, maybe pinch their wives, but don't go too far. There will, however, I'm sure they were reminded, be a few exotic French demoiselles working there. Women that, and this was important, these men had never met before. Naturally, they'd have to pay, but it would probably come to no more than, say, just about what they had earned on the raid. Handy, that. But it was a, a good time. It was a laugh. A little vacation for these working men. But for Culliford and Mason and all of the others who had sailed under Jean Charpin, this was their job. These wages just weren't going to cut it. So they started talking. Is this... Really? What you guys do? <laughs> okay. Sail with a real crew and you're not going to see scraps like this. We're talking about sea chests filled with silver and gold. Oh yeah, I used to have one. What, uh, what happened to it? Well, I spent it after all, all of it on wine and women and a good time. And, uh, the rest of it I buried. Yeah, I buried treasure all over the West Indies. I'm a rich man. But really, I'm here for the adventure. So you want in? They did indeed want in. And that desire would only grow. Things were going to get worse for these privateers. When they got back to Nevis with their paltry winnings in hand, and when they handed off most of their sugar to the captain general, he had orders for them. Orders? <laughs> you guys take orders? Wow. Sucks to be you. They had orders to go relieve another English squadron this one under a Captain Thomas Hornhill. His fleet had attacked St. Martin, only upon going ashore, a French fleet under the governor of Saint-Domingue, Jean-Baptiste Ducasse, arrived surprisingly on the scene. The English who had made landfall were trapped there. They were besieged on foreign soil by, if we're being honest here, a bunch of filthy French pirates. So Admiral Houston, backed up by Captain Kidd, led the relief mission. They sailed in and opened fire on the French. It turned into an hours-long ship-of-the-line-style battle. We're talking two groups of vessels firing at each other over and over and over again. It was mostly inconclusive, but really their job was to draw the attention of the French long enough that their English comrades could make their escape. It was, relative to its size at least, a pitched naval battle. Men were killed, men were injured. However, this, all in all, turned out to be a fantastic victory for the English. They really, you know, sacked the French in the jaw here at St. Martin. Admiral Houston, and I'm calling him Admiral because he was at the head of a fleet, but really his official title was Captain Houston, but Captain Houston was a respectable officer, and in his official report after the battle, he praised Captain Kidd. Kidd had turned out to be a stout, vigorous, and 
talented naval commander, exactly the kind of man that England needed in this fight. It was here that Houston called Captain William Kidd, quote, a mighty man. That's high praise, but it's praise that Captain Kidd's crew did not exactly agree with. Oh, he was a fine battle commander, sure, but they weren't here to fight battles, remember. They were here to earn a little money. You're not exactly going to get rich on three and a third pounds. You don't earn any money fighting off French blockades and ship-of-the-line battles. This was not what they were here to do. Men died in that fight, and did anybody on board Blessed William have anything to show for it? Aside from three and a third pounds, of course, well, there is William Kidd. He had a lot to show for it. William Kidd was the toast of the town. He was taken ashore before Codrington. He was showered in praise and granted a rank in the regional Royal Navy for his service. It was quite the affair, quite the to-do in praise of Captain Kidd. But while he was ashore, we can assume, waltzing with Codrington's daughter and drinking champagne, the crew of the Blessed William, who had once again been left to guard the ship, they came to a decision. Those respectable privateers just took the ship. They elected William Mason as their captain, with Robert Culliford quartermaster, and then they sailed Blessed William off into the night. They had decided at last to be pirates. And this more or less catches William Kidd up to the establishment of St. Mary's off the coast of Madagascar. That's going to kind of be our focal point over the next few weeks, get everybody caught up to that moment. However, William Kidd's story kind of pauses here. While Mason and Culliford and George Rayner and John Ireland and Thomas Too and Henry Every, while they're all really about to get going, Captain Kidd is going to sail for New York. He's going to marry, marry well, in fact. He's going to settle down into a life of wealthy domestic bliss for a while. That's where we're going to leave him, and we'll talk more about that domestic bliss when we return to the story of Captain Kidd. But in the meantime, next time, we're going to go back across the Atlantic Ocean. We're going to visit our good friend, a gunner's mate, serving in the Nine Years' War, currently about to engage in disastrous battle. Long Ben Bridgman. Or, you know, Henry Every. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. And everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family. You all make this possible. And a quick note... One of you recently got in touch with me to let me know that the Pirate History Podcast is currently sitting at number 17 on the Society and Culture podcast list in Argentina. There were others in there too, lower down, but not significantly all across the Spanish-speaking Americas, which is, well, that's awesome. I'll be sure to buy and then raise a glass of Argentinian wine, or maybe a mug of yerba mate. Either way, thanks for all the support. All of you, I mean it. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au 
That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight